What's good, everybody? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. They are the go-to for digital music distribution and the easiest way for musicians to get your music onto Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, and more. They offer unlimited uploads, and artists keep 100% of their earnings in stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor. Fastest payouts. They help out with automatic splits, cover song clearance, and all kinds of other amazing tools and templates to help you get the most visibility for your releases. I dig this company and really appreciate their business model that offers more features than any other distributor at the most affordable price possible for solo musicians, bands, studio artists, DJs, and any other creators that are producing music in their home. And they also offer label services as well. They're distributing over a third of the world's digital music at this point. And the best part about DistroKid sponsoring the podcast is that they are offering Dan Cable Presents listeners 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable services even cheaper. Check out the link in the episode notes. I will also put it in my Instagram bio in the link tree. Click that link and it will give you 30% off your first year of service. Super stoked to have DistroKid sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents Podcast. Thank you for tuning into the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Tuesday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And that will help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, which will make it more visible on the national and international levels. Helping strangers find the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to the people that have already taken the time to leave those reviews super important to the growth and sustainability of this thing if you're not listening on apple just hit like follow subscribe wherever you are listening from share the podcast with a friend leave a comment on an instagram post to try to penetrate the goofy uh, algorithms that we're fighting against here and uh check out the monthly playlist that i've been dropping on apple and spotify pretty spread out genre wise just kind of a, a glimpse of what i'm listening to throughout the month things that are making it into my dj sets and the links for those will be in the episode notes new playlist dropping every first of the month hope everybody is doing well out there surviving the holiday madness excited to get into episode 338 Corey scott is on the podcast i met Corey, i think towards the beginning of this year there's an organization called music portland here in portland oregon and they throw a monthly meetup for artists and industry folks and Corey and I showed up to one and ended up sitting at the same table and got to chatting about our backgrounds and whatnot and seemed to kind of 
hit it off and we've kind of kept up with each other. Well, not kind of, I guess we have. We have kept up with each other ever since. He's just this dude that has been really kind to me and willing to help me and really has no reason to, which I think is the, the coolest part of it. And my hope is to just do my best to carry that spirit forward whenever I have the opportunity to. So I'm stoked to share this one. Corey has been a longtime tour manager for various bands over the years and has worked a bunch of different jobs on touring production crews and currently works in artist management as well. It was really cool to get an extensive breakdown of how he got his start in the industry of tour managing and how things progressed from jumping in a van with his friends as unpaid help along their tour to eventually traveling the world, tour managing artists. I really appreciated the insight on what he's learned from his experiences and his mentors along the way. I think these stories are important in making these roles and jobs feel more tangible and that sometimes it's just about showing up to do something and trying to do it really well paid or not paid and then sometimes those unpaid things lead to your career path so we are going to get into that momentarily uh, I do want to mention that this is the final call for the Dan Cable Presents Holidays Party, fifth annual Holidays Party going on at Mississippi Pizza this Thursday night, 8 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. sharp. Hard cut off of 10.30 because that's when Mississippi Pizza wraps up music on Thursdays. And also, I've got an 11 p.m. hockey game after that I plan on making it to. And I better make it there because I'm the goalie. And if I don't show up, it's gonna be it's gonna be a rough one with no uh, no tendy back there. But Thursday night, December fifteenth, Vanport DJ set to kick things off, and then uh, the Frank Irwin quintet is playing after Vanport past guest of the podcast from earlier this year. We uh, had an awesome chat over uh, over summer and. Uh, My buddy Chris Frank, who is the band leader for the Frank Irwin Quintet, is uh, just a longtime friend of the podcast and has uh, has played a holidays party in the past with uh, a different project, the Pariahs, who were on episode 100, and he's guested on the cast a couple other times outside of that as well so just uh in a, a historical figure if uh, you're a longtime listener chris frank is so i'm excited to have his band the frank Irwin quintet playing after vanport's dj set if you're listening time come through it's only 10 bucks and it's going to be a good night of music and and just a good hang ticket link is in my instagram bio that's all the ramblings. Let's get in to episode 338. I appreciate you for uh, checking this thing out. I think because I've comfortably been in triple digits of this thing for several years now, it sometimes escapes me that the there's 300 plus episodes of this thing. And uh, it's a lot. It's pretty crazy. And uh, a lot has changed. A lot is changing. And I hope the show has evolved in positive ways. I know it's certainly experienced its uh, its fair share of growing pains over the years as well as its uh, fair share of wins. So thank you for tuning in, whether you are 
a new listener, you're a long time listener, just a, a casual listener that, that checks in on this thing every once in a while. I, uh, I appreciate you. This is episode 338 with Corey Scott. Let's do the damn thing. Um, right on. Well, we can we can jump into it then, Corey. If you're sure. feeling feeling good about yeah, it, yeah, yeah, I am, I am. I'm awesome. excited. I'm also excited because I don't know. Typically, usually talking to musicians, the mm. people were watching on stage or listening to records, and every once in a while, I get to dive on the other side of talking to industry folks. Or yeah. like last week, I had some guys on that were just talking about event safety and they, okay, they kind of cool. like create infrastructure for that, which was like uh, a nice shift in gears, but I'm stoked to talk to you just because I don't know, like tour managing has been like your game for a long time. And I've yeah. like just gotten my first taste of that this year and spent like, I don't know, close to 12 weeks on the road doing some of that. And I never imagined that I wouldn't necessarily be doing any sort of work like that. It always sounded like, very appealing to me and seemed like something I would enjoy, but, um, I was just kind of given those opportunities this year. So I think it's like rad to get to maybe pick your brain about it a little bit. And along with like some of the artist management stuff. So, um, yeah, man, I'm like, I know a little bit about your background and we both grew up in Southern California, but like Talk to me about like, what was your early exposure to music? Like before maybe getting your first opportunity to be in the role of like tour management or anything like along the lines of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, music was just part of my life growing up. My dad, uh, is of that, um, generation of, uh, you know, classic rock, uh, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, whether it was like Kansas or Sticks yeah. or Black Sabbath or Grateful Dead. My dad's been to like 20 Grateful Dead concerts. <laughs> so that was definitely part of my uh, upbringing. And so it was just something that was inherent there in the household. Was there instruments in the house at all? No. Okay. And and uh, my dad was even when I wanted to start playing guitar, he was a little reluctant. Uh, just, uh, I mean, I on top of loving music, my parents are both uh, working class people, so they were just like, "Oh no, guitar! That's gonna keep us <laughs> up at night." Uh, and uh, I uh, got like a, a summer job. And made money and bought my first guitar uh, going into geez, between seventh and eighth grade, bought my first guitar. And uh, it was not natural. I'm not like music is not a natural Dude. gene in my my family. So uh, I always tell people like I'm not a musician. I'm a guy that plays guitar. <laughs> I feel that. Yeah, I, I'm very much like. I wanted a guitar so bad and I always like wanted to be in a band, but I remember getting my first guitar and picking it up and wanting to be able to play songs mm -hmm. and that frustration of just not feeling like my hands were ever going to be able to move mm -hmm. that way. I think like I'm pretty much immediately got the guitar and then was just like, nah, fuck this. Yeah. Like I'm not, <laughs> this isn't happening for me. Do you, do you not play anymore? I do play do now. Play. Like okay. there was a certain point where I wanted to be able to like write songs. So I just kind of like sat yeah. down with it and I was like, Oh, you develop a, a discipline for something and you can get better at 
something, even yeah. if you feel like you will never be capable of doing this thing. And I'm still not a great player. I'm not the person that you want, like a part of your jam. I've mm-hmm. not going oh. to be able to like yeah. apply any sort of skill set like that. I can like pick it up and strum some chords and, and mm-hmm. sing some songs. <laughs> kind yeah. Of thing. I was always more of the daydreamer the you know sitting in class fantasizing like writing you know uh you know lyrics or whatever you know drawing in my notebook fantasizing about being a rock star but the execution of that like i just didn't have the discipline to sit for hours and work on my craft yeah but were you the kid like what like sitting around watching behind the music oh absolutely all All day (laughs) yeah i yeah it's funny i was becoming more of a like um uh, music historian in that sense of just like being obsessed with watching behind the music and yeah, and, yeah at that time it, a lot of VH1 uh, classics and um, documentaries anything I was just like I couldn't get enough of it yeah um, and even at that time like I wasn't going to a lot of shows yet uh, it was just living outside of uh, San Diego not having a car yet. Um, well, just like we were talking about, it takes for yeah, like you have forever. to be able to drive everywhere. If like if you live in the suburbs, there's no walking mm-hmm. <laughs> to like the downtown area. Yeah, or even like you know, there's like a trolley line down there. But if you don't live close to that trolley line, you're not going anywhere. So it really it's a car driven area. So so yeah, you know, it was just again a lot of fantasizing. Uh, I had a boombox in my room, and I had this uncle, my dad's brother who was like a very like 80s metalhead guy uh long hair and uh you know he'd always be wearing um you know like a danzig t-shirt or something like that and he was the one that got me my first um like first pantera cd first danzig cd uh you know testament these metal bands and really uh, my first iron maiden cd pushed me in that direction of really getting into like heavy metal and that was a, the bulk of my teenage year years and the first couple of years of my 20s was being obsessed with that stuff. Uh, I have an Iron Maiden tattoo <laughs> that uh, uh, doesn't get much sunlight these days. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was just uh, those were like beyond what I got from my dad. Those were like the early roots of my passion for music. And then, you know, a- after that, I kind of went the opposite direction where uh I got into, I was like, well, let's kind of explore the roots of this. So I started getting into like some blues, some country, you know, early like fifties rock and roll, just kind of like trying to figure out like, uh, where that stuff came from. Were you, were you always kind of like along with, you know, developing new tastes and getting turned on to different stuff? Were you always tinkering around with the guitar alongside that as just kind of like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, you know, I'd get into like country, you know, yeah. I, I definitely went through a phase where I was like, uh, discovering, you know, Hank Williams and Carl Perkins and some of those things. And, you know, in those days, YouTube existed still. Uh, but having the internet wasn't quite as accessible. Right. I didn't have a smartphone yet. So when I did have the opportunity, I would look up like country guitar licks you know, and I'd learn some things and, you know, blues guitar, learn some things. But again, it always came down to the discipline. Like I never had, I would never sit there for five, six hours a day and yeah. just practice. And always kind of like a solo 
thing too not not like something where you were necessarily jamming with friends or well growing up at that time there was not a big metal scene in san diego and if there was i didn't know about it yeah growing up you know outside of the city that it wasn't there and all my friends were like punk rock kids okay and because they were the closest thing I could identify with, you know, like I had long hair and tight pants and a denim jacket yeah. and a bullet belt. <laughs> and the other people that were closest to that were punk rock guys. And so they were all in punk bands and I was over there playing, you know, Metallica riffs and they were just <laughs> not like, cool, man. not cool. Yeah. And so I just I could never find anybody that wanted to play the same kind of music as me. Yeah. So that was always like the biggest struggle I had as well. And so I'd always have these like bands. Yeah. That I could I could find like a drummer and we'd jam. It would just be me and a drummer. Right. Uh, could never find a bass player. Could never find another guitar player. You know, I wasn't a natural singer, so I was never singing. Yeah. So it was always rough trying to go the route of being in a band. Yeah. It's all right, man. You all you missed out on was a pay to play scene in Southern California. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and that was the thing is like I was always a huge champion of my friends bands. Yeah. I was at every sh local show. I was at uh, when when my friends were playing. I was at all those things as we got older. And so I saw all that. All the pay to play, all the promoters putting on these like 10 band bills that were n none of the bands were the same or similar. Yeah. Uh, just nobody getting paid, you oh. know, all, all those kind of things. Yeah, that was yeah. my my life from like 19 to 25 or so. Yeah, was playing those types of shows where you're obligated to sell 40 or 50 tickets and mm -hmm. you get to play the cool venues like the yeah. Roxy and the Troubadour, but sure. you also have to make uh, 50 of your friends drive from 40 miles east of the city because you don't actually live near yeah. LA to like get out there yeah. and whatnot. Or, or what it would end up being was that somebody in the band or somebody's parents in the band would buy those tickets because yeah. <laughs> you couldn't sell them all. Yeah. We didn't quite have that, uh, that wealth in, in our, uh, yeah. in no, our I, band. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely remember friends opening up for, um, like more legendary punk bands like TSOL or yeah. the adolescents uh, who it's funny now that I've, you know, progressed throughout the industry over the years, I look back at those. And I'm like, yeah, we were playing, those bands were playing like, you know, maybe a, like a 400 cap club, you yeah. know, which uh, is, you know, small. Yeah, most people consider that small, but at the time it was like, Oh my God, we get to open for these huge legendary yeah. bands. And it was such this big deal, but it was always pay to play, you know, it was always had to get those tickets and it never, yeah, it never went well. Did you ever go to any shows at the showcase theater in Corona? Mm, no, okay. no. Like when I was a teenager, I didn't really leave San Diego much. Okay. Um, my first times really leaving San Diego weren't till I was, I mean, I moved, I moved cross country when I was 18 and I lived outside of DC for three years, did some exploring on the East coast. But then when I came back to San Diego is when I moved to orange County. And then from there it was like doing my first tour was a, a West coast run when I was 21. So that was my first time really leaving Southern California, yeah. seeing the West coast. And then, uh, so I missed a lot of those, uh, early, like the times that I would have gone to those shows, I missed it. I just stayed yeah. in San Diego. It was, uh, Soma was our local uh, venue. It's been remodeled from what I understand. I haven't been back in a very long time. Yeah. But at the time, it was a rough little <laughs> place. So um, how did you uh, how'd you plug in to that first 
gig and and what was it exactly so a long-term friend uh him and i had a band together uh, another guitar player so it was two guitar players he sang uh we had a drummer for a minute no bass player uh so that was short-lived failed um and he he's the type of guy he's still always in bands um uh, he's a huge champion of the san diego music scene and so at at one point he was playing guitar in a rockabilly band okay we were living in orange county together and it was like a psychobilly it's like punk and rockabilly mixed like together some, like some tiger army yeah exactly you're like no actually it was it tiger was army. tiger army no no it was not <laughs> uh but uh uh it was more more of like tiger army's it's funny uh your average person probably doesn't really know tiger army but i would say tiger army's like more mainstream than what they were doing okay. they were a little bit more like um coffin cats or um necromantics okay. or uh Reverend horton heat those kind of things yeah and uh they were there was a good rockabilly scene in orange county at the time in la Absolutely. still still is um but they were doing a they got on a tour as the openers for a slightly larger uh, rockabilly band and it was um like a nine day run uh i want to say we went to like oh man the first show was in like montana missoula so we like deadheaded from la and then spokane seattle portland uh eugene san francisco bay area uh, and just ran down and I remember just tagging along like they told me they were going to do that and um, I, I'd been like their roadie their unofficial yeah. roadie yeah. I was just like the buddy that was always tagging along for that whole time they were doing local shows I remember they did like a weekend where they drove up to like San Luis Obispo and I was with them and so when this happened I was like cool let's go yeah. and there was a conversation of like oh there's not enough room in the van we can't bring another person and uh, my buddy like fought to get me out there to go with them and while we were out there it was just like the fantasy was real. You know, it was finally coming true, finally out on the road. And the singer of the headliner band was like the one that was like, ah, do we really need another person in the van? And I was out there at the time I was unemployed. So I was broke, working for free, just wanted to be experiencing things. At the time I was like 21, I was reading a lot of Kerouac on the road, <laughs> you know, fantasizing about traveling, but no like particular role within this band other no. than just being like the homie that like yeah. helped lift amps in yeah. and like yeah. load stuff yeah, in I'd and watch, maybe sell some merch. Yeah, or, I'd watch the merch while they were on stage. I'd yeah. drive the van at night. I was just there to, to, to be helpful. Yeah. And the singer of the headlining band saw this. And at one point he goes, uh, like, uh, how much are they paying you? And I go, pay me. <laughs> <laughs> people get paid to do this and i have this very distinct memory we were in uh ben loman i think is what it's called and it's outside of the bay area and it was a biker bar which kind of uh, coincides with the rockabilly scene and we were sitting at the merch table and he asked me that and i said pay me you know blah blah, blah. and he says uh oh yeah um like roadies make more more money than musicians most of the time and it was at that moment it clicked in my head and it was like, I need to be a roadie. Like I need to pursue this. 
And then so I'll I'll credit that guy for really kind of like pushing me. And then in conjunction to that, my uh, dad, who's a deadhead, he had a book that somebody gave him that was the head roadie of the Grateful Dead. It was his biography. And I came home and I read that. And that was just like reading oh just like oh my god his experience with the dead for 30 years and those two things combined it was just like i'm doing this so that book was like your first mentor in some ways (laughs) yeah yeah really his name's steve Parrish, and i've never met him but i've met countless uh grateful dead roadies over the years like retired dead roadies Mm -hmm. and i always ask them like do you know steve and they go oh yeah and i go Tell him, you know, whatever band I'm working for, like tell him the tour manager for so-and-so uh, is uh, like, I'm doing what I do because of his book. His book inspired me to do this. And uh, one day I hope to meet him to That's actually amazing. tell him he has a podcast. Maybe one day he'll have me on his podcast. <laughs> actually, he has a radio show. Yeah. So. That's awesome. So yeah. how did things like progress from, you know, you getting that idea in your head from this dude in the band? And then, you know, coinciding with, with reading the book, did you just continue to surround yourself with friends, bands and whatnot? Yeah. So it was that, uh, the singer of that headlining band. So he came at me a little later, like the next day, a couple days later and was like, why don't you come work for me? I'll pay you 20 bucks a day or 20 bucks a show. And at the time I was like, hell yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> and he had a, um, a 10 week U S tour coming up and I said yes. And it was me, him and his two other band members. So he was a singer, guitar player, and there was a drummer and an upright bass player. Okay. And, um, I spent 10 weeks. He took me across the country for the first, like, around the country for the first time uh we probably hit something like 30 states and we were sleeping on floors promoters houses sound guys houses there was times where uh the bass player was a bit of a charmer and we'd go hey go find us somewhere to stay tonight yeah. you know and he'd go work the crowd and you know talk to people and he'd come back and be like cool we're gonna stay at this chick's house yeah. <laughs> you know things like that uh b- broke and again it was 20 bucks a, sh- a show right so we'd have like four days off between you know gigs or something and we'd just be you know chilling at the promoter's house you know the promoter would be like barbecuing for us or making us pasta because it's yeah. cheap and um you know like at that time I could stretch $20 a little bit better. You For know? sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of like, we'd get, you know, the band would get a little bit of money and we'd get drink, a couple drink tickets and mm-hmm. they'd, they'd give us a burger, you know, at the yeah. bar. And so that was, that was pretty much like how we were living at that time. So it started there and then kind of back, you know, rewind a little bit. Uh, the drummer for my buddy's band was a hired drummer. And, uh, it turned out, uh, coincidentally that he was also the drum tech for the band real big fish. And when he saw me working for free, he was also very impressed. And at a later date, he came to me and was like, Hey, uh, would you be interested in selling merch for real big fish on warp tour next summer? And I was like, yes, absolutely. And so I'd had that like unofficial offer to do that. Yeah. 
And so this was like, I don't even know if I was texting back then. It was like yeah, what, not a smartphone. What year was your first warp tour that you do? With- so warp tour was 2010. Okay. So this was all happening like 2009. Okay. Um, and so I'm out on this 10 week U S tour and, uh, I'm like not communicating with people like, uh, but I would give him a phone call every once in a while and just be like, Hey, do I still have this job offer? You know? And he'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. How's the tour going? And you know, I would talk to him about it and stuff. And so I do this 10 week tour and I come home and warp tour is maybe like a month later or something like that. A couple months later. And I go out on the warp tour 2010 with real big fish and I, I'm very fortunate that I went from a van to a bus yeah. <laughs> very quick in my career. There's people that grind for a decade in a van before they ever even see a bus, if they even do see one. Yeah. So I, I acknowledged that really fast that I was fortunate. And so I got on that bus and I was selling merch out in 100 degree, 110 degree weather. Um, that's what I was there to do. And I just soaked it all in. You know, I was always very... I always knew I was fortunate to be in that situation, whatever situation I was in. I always knew it was like something that people fantasized about. Yeah. Well, you fantasized about it, which is like the cool thing, I think. And and even, you know, getting to do my first tour managing gigs and like 36, 37 Mm -hmm. is just like, this is the thing that I have been waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. whether it's grinding it out or like yeah. the good life of it or whatever. Yeah. I, I think that I always like an ability I've always had is to acknowledge the opportunities I've been given and to, um, not only be grateful for those, but also to see like how I can turn that into more opportunities And part of that has always been observe, observing other people around me. And so that first tour with real big fish, I just watched how these, like I'd watch how all the other merch people sold merch. Mm -hmm. I'd watch how the stage techs built the stage. I'd watch how the tour manager for real big fish who uh, shout out to him, Tom Ames. He is a legend and he's still my mentor. Um, But I watched how he did it. And it was that tour where I was like, I want to be a tour manager Mm. and uh it was always like it burnt into my head like i want to do that yeah what did you maybe like see in like what tom was doing that like really resonated or like made you like gravitate towards well his his style of things (laughs) there his style um he is a uh a uh you catch more flies with honey kind of guy. Okay. Very well-tempered, always joking, always very nice. Um, if you saw him yelling, you knew there was a real problem going on somewhere, but it was always kind of one of those things where I knew that whatever I wanted to do, if I was going to do something, I wanted to be at the top of it. Mm -hmm. And I saw tour managers as being the top of it. And part of that is they're just, he was running the show. It was his, it's, it was his tour. You know, he was making sure the band was getting from, you know, point A to point B. He was making sure they were getting on stage. He was making sure he was collecting the money. He was making sure merch was set up and, you know, doing all all right, making sure the techs were building the stage. Like he just was overseeing the whole thing. 
And uh, I have an, another men- mentor who uh, his saying is uh, tour managers like being the conductor. You know, you're not playing the instruments, you know, but you're you're overseeing the whole thing and making sure it happens. And that's what Tom was doing, you know, and I just saw that and I'm just like, he's the guy, you know, <laughs> and, and it comes back to like not being a very good musician yeah, and just being like, uh, there's still a role for me within the music industry for sure. Like I can still bring value to a band, you know, without playing an instrument, like being behind the scenes is where I can, um, uh, bring something to them and make them better. And over the years, as I've progressed from a merch person, uh, to a tour manager. And I had a lot of jobs in between that. Like one of my favorite things as a tour manager is my ability to be candid with the artist. Like it's, it's such a close relationship with tour managers and, and artists. And I can watch the show and I can say something like, you know what you should really do during this one part? Like maybe we'll bring the lights down and, you know, get a little bit more, bring the band down and you get more intimate or maybe like the, the lights should be this color for this portion of the song or sure. maybe like bring, you know, do things like that. And they may not listen to me. They, they may not execute it, mm-hmm. but they'll listen to me, you know, and they'll take what I have to say as like a creative input. Yeah. I mean, cause the, you know, the band never gets to see themselves exactly. on stage. Yeah. Like they never get that, that yeah. point of view. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, like as a tour manager, ba- get the band on stage. That's like number one, get yeah. the band on stage. And then once they're on stage, I make my rounds. Like I make sure the band's good, go check on the tech, make sure he's okay. Uh, go walk out to the merch table, make sure they're okay. Yeah. Uh, if they need a break, you know, let them go take a break. I'll watch the merch for a couple minutes, go check on the front of house engineers, make yeah. sure they're okay. Go out to the bus, make sure the door's locked, things like that. But I'll watch the show and just kind of make notes in my head, you know? And, and if, when you're doing like a, you know, multi-city tour, it's an opportunity for the band to kind of cultivate their show. And so it's always like refining it, making it better, trying to bring the best thing to the audience. And every band's kind of different. There's bands where it's more like, like Real Big Fish, everything was just off the cuff. You didn't know what you were going to get that each night. And it was spontaneous. But there was also an element of like uh, curating it. Like, oh, that didn't work last night. So let's try this tomorrow night. You yeah. Know? And that's what I love as a tour manager where I can help shape it and and help the the artist bring the best possible product to the, the audience yeah and did you kind of like slowly start to understand when your time was to speak up about something opposed to just like maybe this isn't my lane to like say anything or yeah well the great thing about really fish is it was a family um the, those guys would spend Jeez, man, we we would be out on the road like 280 days out of the year. Uh, we you know we do a three week U.S. tour, come home for four days, and then go to or I'm sorry, we do like a six week U.S. tour, come home for four days, and then go to Europe for six weeks. Yeah, things like that. And we were just grinding, and so six band members and then three crew. We were tight knit. Uh, I knew we all lived in Southern California. Uh, we'd hang out outside of touring. I knew everybody's wives and girlfriends and their kids. You know, I know what they're allergic to. <laughs> you know, I, you know, yeah. I know what their favorite movie is. It was so close. And with those guys, there was never a a hierarchy mm. in that sense. So it was like, as a merch guy, and I was their guitar tech as well for a lot of those years, and like. 
I could come to the bus after the show and like look at the singer and go, that joke bombed, (laughs) you (laughs) know, like you should, I had this idea or like I had this idea, you should try doing this. And again, like he may not do it, but he would always listen, you know, and take it in. And sometimes he would do it. Sometimes he wouldn't. Yeah. Or you could be like, oh my God, that one part was so good. You have to do that again tomorrow night. And it was like help shaping it. Uh, A lot of other bands I've noticed over the years are a little bit more like there's more of a hierarchy mm. and um, like the bigger a band is, there's oftentimes like um, the manager is the person who's giving that creative input. And I saw that, yeah, you know, and so that was also part of like wanting to push towards being a tour manager. And so as I learned more about, I mean, I spent six years with real big fish and so learning more about just how to put on a live show live event put you know putting on concerts learning production like that's the big key word here is production yeah um so just like seeing watching other bands we did a lot of festivals um just seeing how other bands put on shows just learning how the industry worked really it just helped shape my um creative vision and then after i left real big fish in 2015 I went to work for a band called St. Lucia. They are a key synth pop band based out of Brooklyn. And I loved working for those guys. And I credit them for for opening my mind to other genres of music. Um, It was just key synth pop music was not something I would listen to. But working for them, uh, I heard it every night and I loved it. Yeah, must be such like a different environment too yeah. because like i've been to a real big fish show like i grew up listening yeah, to sure. <laughs> some real big fish records well, especially you, being like a southern california kid yeah yeah like you, that's just like part of the culture the like the punk rock and the ska yeah and, yeah yeah you can't get through growing up in southern california without listening to some ska music <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah it's and a thing you, you're going towards like this more like maybe like artsy synth pop sure. kind yeah. of like indie well, world and they were worldly yeah i mean the singers from South Africa, his wife, uh, who's also in the band, she's Thai, Taiwanese German. They met uh, going to school in London. Um, all the musicians were, you know, one guy's from Houston, one guy's from Iowa, one guy's from LA, and so it was just like this mix of people playing this music I wasn't super familiar with. And the singer Jean, he, like my favorite thing about working for that band, I was the guitar tech stage manager, and. I felt like my role with that band was I was helping his vision become reality. Mm. And so he had this idea of what the show should look like, how, you know, the stage should be built, how things should be set up. And my job was to build the stage and make it look what, it, you know, the closest to what, you know, he would articulate it being. And, and one thing I loved about him is he would, he, he was the type of guy where he'd be like, Okay, so he had like this array of guitars and he'd be like, okay, tonight I'm going to wear this outfit. So I want to play this guitar because it like matches and it looks better. And he really opened me up to more of the visuals of like um, uh, of the show. 
and uh man like they would do this big intro where you know the stage would be dark and they'd start playing the intro music from front of house and the band would come on uh minus him and they would start playing their instruments and then the lights would come up and then he would come from backstage through a hole in the backdrop and it was like this whole whole production yeah and so that was like so I, i learned the basics with real big fish and then he really took it to the next level as far as like making it a theatrical event. And so about that same time, that same year, uh, 2016, I started working for Revolution as well. I was like, I that was a busy year. <laughs> that was probably my busiest year I've ever been on the road. Uh, I'd go from a, a like a four week St. Lucia tour mm-hmm. and fly from whatever city into another city and do three weeks with Reb. And uh, Reb is probably the biggest reggae band in America, uh, maybe the world debatable. Um, but they have their own style of production. And, you know, that was my first time, um, getting to do shows in amphitheaters and arenas and things like that. Um, doing these huge festivals, uh, and learning a, a different aesthetic, of production as well. So I I'm fortunate that I've been able to work in these different genres, uh, learning the basics, learning, uh, like visuals of like theatrics, uh, getting to put shows on in bigger venues. Cause there's, there's definitely a a difference between like putting a show on in a 400 cap club and then putting a show on in a 20,000 cap arena, Yeah, things like that. So, and it sounds like, you know, you being kind of that sponge, like you're the type Mm -hmm. of dude that, you kind of wanted to like understand what each person's yeah. role. So where you were like, kind of like learning basics about like even like the sound tech, sure. like engineering or just like, yeah. Or the lighting, like just like really interested in what each person yeah. was doing so that you had like, even the, like the vocabulary is like yeah. so important. It seems like, like even if you don't necessarily like, know all of the ins and outs if you can at least like speak the language a little bit that's helpful yeah i i always saw that the best managers whether it was regardless of the industry there are people that know a little bit about everybody's job and part of that is like how are you going to tell something somebody to do something when you don't understand how it works yourself and so within the music industry, I was just very observant of all different trades. And, uh, I think the only job I I haven't really done is lighting. I've never, I've never like operated a light board. Yeah. And that is a whole nother thing where it's honestly, like if you ever look at like a modern light board, you're looking at like starship command, like control center, it's a whole nother thing. And people, like modern lighting engineers, most of them go to school. You learn software to operate these consoles. Uh, you spend hours and days programming shows. It's it's a thing. Um, I love standing next to the the lighting person and watching them like run their rig mm-hmm. for like a big production. Yeah, it's so fun. Yeah, it's it's impressive. Um, but as far as like uh, lighting goes, I know, I know the basics, Yeah, you know, I know enough to have a conversation. I know enough to like, you know, if, uh, as a tour manager, if my LD comes to me and is telling me like, Hey, I'm having this problem or I need this, this, and this, I can call 
a lighting vendor and say, hey, we need this, this, this and this. It's like I know I know enough to to make help make the show happen. But as far as like sound goes, my first mentor, Tom, he was the tour manager for a house engineer. So that was always um, something that was like, not only do I want to be a tour manager, I want to learn how to do sound. Yeah. And I saw the value in uh, wearing multiple hats. So it was something that was always on my to-do list and I was fortunate that, uh, over the years with real big fish, uh, man, it's, it's so funny. Like in hindsight, I'm just like, how did they let me do this? (laughs) They, they would let me, we would have these busy shows where it'd be like four bands, five bands, and they'd let me mix the openers. And so I'm like selling the merch, I'm the guitar tech as well. And then I'd be mixed. So I have like, like I have to be ready for doors to sell merch, uh, you know, sell for the inrush. And then I'd run over to the front of house console, get the band, you know, mix the opening band, go back to the merch table, sell merch for another couple hours, run to the stage, (laughs) be the guitar tech for the show, (laughs) finish the show, run back to the merch table, sell merch. It was, it was crazy. Um, but it, that gave me an opportunity to learn the basics on sound. Tom taught me a lot. The drum tech, Dave, his name's Dave Irish. He's a very accomplished um, uh, recording engineer. He records Real Big Fish's records as well. And so he taught me a lot. And so that's where I learned like the basics. Uh, sh- shout out to uh, uh, a band, uh, Beebs and her moneymakers. Uh, she was the first uh, like band. She let me mix them. Uh, it was the first band I ever did for like the whole tour. And I remember going to her like the first day of the tour and being like, hey, Beebs, can I mix your band? And, like I'm learning. Can I mix your band? And she just kind of did this. Um, OK, yeah, you know. And uh, I credit her to uh, help. <laughs> giving you that shot. Well, yeah, give me that shot. And part of doing sound is it's repetition. Right. You got to get 50, 75, 100 mixes under your belt before you really feel comfortable and know what you're doing. Uh, and that's something where you can still learn on the field. I don't want to say fairly easy. Like there's definitely people that go to school for sound engineering. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're all amazing engineers. But there's also a lot of amazing engineers who just learned from touring and so uh, it comes back to like how I say uh, I'm not a musician. I'm a guitar player. I'm a guy who plays guitar. Yeah. I'm not a sound engineer. I'm a guy who knows how to do sound. <laughs> <laughs> so so like uh, and it comes back to the value of like I'm not going to get a, a gig with a band where I'm the sound guy, but I'll go. I'll be a tour manager sound guy when it's needed. Yeah. Uh, the last time I did that was with a band called Duran Jones and the Indications, right. uh, retro soul band. Um, and I'd been working with them uh, in various capacities for a while, uh, doing day-to-day management for them and stuff like that. And they needed a tour manager. And so I went out and toured with them for um, most of a year. It was like eight months, almost a year, something like that. And I, uh, they needed, they're very dynamic they have two singers. One is a very high falsetto. He's the drummer as well, yep. which poses a lot of problems. And the local sound guys just were not cutting it. They like wouldn't know when he was singing. And so they like his mic would be turned down and he'd start singing and you can't hear him. Right. And so I just did it. And so, uh, which tour managing and doing sound is a lot of work. Tour, do any two jobs in combination out on the road is a lot of work. Um, yeah, it's yeah. it's hard. Duran Jones and the Indications. That's one of my current favorite bands. Yeah, I have all their records downstairs. Oh, awesome! In the record yeah. store that you saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a record store downstairs. 
So did you, uh, did you always kind of like appreciate though, that sort of like run around where you were, had like a bunch of jobs? Like, was there any like anxiety yeah. around that for you? Or was it just like, I like enjoy the, like staying busy and making sure everything is in its place. And yeah. I love the hustle. Yeah. Uh, I, that's why, uh, Dave Irish got me the job with Rubik fish is cause he saw the hustle in me and he himself is a workaholic and we would have tours where it was like, let's who can work harder than the other guy. <laughs> and and I, I know that sounds so crazy, but it really was. It was like, who could, who could, you know, cause touring is like most fans don't really understand or think about all the work that goes into seeing a live show. Yeah. And even on a club level, it's like people are there from noon and they're there till one in the morning. Yeah. And so it's like, I, it was always like, you know, you're loading out in snowstorms in January in Milwaukee and it's negative 18 degrees. And so there was always an element of just like, well, he's going to do it. So I'm going to do it. Like there was never uh, like giving up moment. There was, it was always just like, pushing each other to be better, to work harder, to be faster. And that's so much of like being out on the road is like trying to just streamline things and become efficient. Mm -hmm. And I have a buddy who uh, eloquently, you know, kind of puts it that if you can shave a minute off of this or you can, you know, shave five minutes off of that. Next thing you know, you're on the bus 30 minutes earlier, chilling out, yeah. you know? And so if you can just become more efficient, you have more time where you're not out in the cult, <laughs> you know, sure. at one in the morning loading up the trailer. So, uh, th I've always had that in me to like, I don't want to say I'm a workaholic, but I definitely like push myself to like get things done. And, uh, I never want to like let the team down yeah, uh, type of thing. And so... Yeah, like the idea of being like a multifaceted um, trade person. It was like, I'm not like eager to like go out and be a TM front of house um, person. Like I'd rather be just the tour manager mm -hmm. because part of it is when you're doing multiple jobs, you're kind of dropping the ball somewhere on something. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, like doing TM front of house, like, you know, you're spending enough time doing the sound portion of it where, you know, you might forget to put your guest list in, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And you got somebody going like, Hey, my guests didn't get in. And you're like, Oh man, I forgot to do that. You know? And so it's better. Like my, my advice for all you bands out there, uh, it's better to like, when you're starting out, you're going to need people that wear multiple hats, but you get to the point where it's worth it to pay people to do one job. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's like at the level of tour managing that I've been doing with the, this high pole band, people are just like, what do you do? And I'm just like, Everything. I, I kind of just do whatever yeah. I need to yeah. do that day. <laughs> you know, it's like, sometimes I'm, you know, loading gear in and sometimes I'm yeah. selling merch and sometimes I'm the driver of the bus yeah. and <laughs> like whatever well, needs to, to happen. But I do remember when you and I first started chatting, like one of the first things that like words of advice that you gave me was like, yeah, dude, if you want to do more of this, 
do learn how to do front of house sound and you will get gigs like if you can be capable of that in some sort of way yeah you know and it's like not only getting more gigs it's also from like a management side like it like managing an artist like i'm not talking tour managing i'm talking like managing Mm -hmm. an artist you want to be able to have like you know you go say your artist is doing a local show you're there you're watching it and it doesn't sound right yeah and your ability to walk to the front of house console and have an articulate conversation with a local sound engineer is valuable versus just saying like, I can't hear the guitar and they're going to look at you and just be like, eh, whatever, get yeah. out of here. But if you can be like, it needs more mids. Exactly. <laughs> or, or, or anything like that, or like bring it up five DB yeah. or, or just like, you know, I'm not even going to get into a conversation about sound, but like, just having the vocabulary goes yeah. a long way. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that's like, I don't know, something like still pretty like early on in, in some of this. And I, I always want to like respect that house engineer. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do you like do that respectfully? But I guess like if they know that you regularly work with this person and you do have the vocabulary, mm-hmm. then it doesn't come across as you are the the know it all. Hopefully, well, I, I mean, I think anybody that's uh, in the music industry, especially live music, everyone knows the cliche of the grumpy house sound engineer. <laughs> like it's pretty standard. Yeah. Um. You know, when it comes to that, it's always just um, being appreciative and being communicative, Uh, like making yourself known earlier in the day. Like, hey, how's it going? You know, my name's Dan. Uh, You know, I work with so and so. Thank you so much for doing this for us. You know, that goes a long way, you know, Uh, as opposed to the manager who. Uh, is hanging out backstage all day, all evening, but then goes out to the front of house guy mid concert and says, Oh, th- you know, this sounds bad. You need to do this, this, and this. Your sound guy's going to be like, Who are you? <laughs> you know, this is my Not venue. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I have a very distinct memory. Uh, I was out with the Real Big Fish. It was, I think, my last Real Big Fish show, and we were in Brussels. And uh, we didn't tour with a lighting engineer and we always would just give notes to the house engineer. And that night, the house uh, lighting uh, LD wasn't really following our notes. And so um, it was just like way too bright and some some other things and i remember one of the band members like coming up and being like oh like the lights are too bright go tell the guy to like turn them down and i remember running out to the front of house telling him like hey it's too bright you you need to bring the intensity down you know and then going back and then you know a little bit later someone being like oh there's too many strobes you know go tell him to turn the strobes off and running back out there and being like hey man you, you need to like turn the strobes off And literally the guy just like turned the lights off and walked away, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like he was just like, who are you to come and tell me how to do my job? You know, and so that was a good lesson in, you know, like, hey, how's it going? Oh, my name's Corey. I work for the band. What's your name? Thank you so much for being here. Establish some sort of communication beforehand. Absolutely. Because I hadn't seen him all day. Somebody else had given him instructions. So he was looking at me like, who are you? You know? So, yeah. Yeah. I imagine that's like the rough thing, too, with like a big production like that is that there isn't always maybe that opportunity to get to like meet everybody that's like 
yeah at a station yeah you know and like i always i always say like as the crew for a band you're the face of the band so there's there's some importance to like communicating with the house staff Mm -hmm. you know letting them know who you are and having a good disposition and a good attitude because if you're a jerk that reflects on the band and i've definitely gone through through the evolution over the years of learning these things i mean i definitely have memories of um early days with real big fish being waking up 10 minutes before load in being tired from the night before rolling in being in a bad mood and um you know, getting getting into arguments with house guys, and, <laughs> and then you know later people, you know, it just that's how people remember the band. Like, oh, their yeah. crew guy was such a jerk. You yeah. know, it doesn't look good for the band. And and I learned those things the the more I stepped into the management roles, the mm-hmm. importance of that. You know, and so now as like a, a manager or tour manager, I'm always like, uh, I I subscribe to the chain of command mantra in the sense of like, if you have a problem with like a house person. You come to me and I'll handle it. No getting in fights, no yelling, no arguments. You got a problem. You come to me. I'll go talk to them. I'll go talk to the house and, you know, house manager and we'll resolve it. You know, so it, it was a journey to get to that point. Believe me, you know, uh, it wasn't inherent in me to have that mentality. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that goes back to just like the importance of just kind of being around it, I think. And like Mm -hmm. my cousin, and I were just like having this big conversation with my grandpa because he's just like trying to understand like what we're doing oh, with man, our lives yeah. and stuff. And my cousin was trying to like explain to him just like how much of like being in this industry sometimes is just being like a good hang, yeah, <laughs> and being absolutely. like an enjoyable person to be around because it's not like a typical nine to five mm-hmm environment yeah yeah i used to i still say it but i would say um it's 99 percent personality and one percent ability yeah (laughs) especially in those early days because people you know when you aren't skilled yet and you're just the guy out there that's doing everything Mm -hmm. i'm here to help it's more important to have somebody you get along with yeah you know than somebody that you know you could be the best sound engineer in the world but if you're a grumpy curmudgeon nobody wants to work with you yeah it seems the same for like musicians in some regards too yeah absolutely and so it was always a goal of mine to be both you know to be a good hang and be good at what i do and i've definitely um like struggled (laughs) over the years with man it took me a long time to let go of perfection so i I was always trying to have the best show, make things perfect. And if that wasn't achieved, it would bum me out. And so like just letting it not ruin my day, (laughs) you know, and just like letting staying easygoing, even though, you know, you might've had a bad experience with a local crew, um, you know, not letting that, you know, affect how you're, you know, getting on the bus at the end of the night. And you know. yeah, well, because so much of like your thing is like the the manager is like maintaining composure. Exactly. I think like yeah, for yeah. like with whatever you're doing, like whether you're like managing a band or a business is like if you are shaken and like people can see that in you, like that's going to like, you know 
it's going to affect the emotion of, yeah. of everything. Well, yeah. And a big part of that, that growth for me was my time with revolution and my time with Duran Jones. Uh, the manager of both of those bands is a shout out, uh, Dean Reyes. He's an amazing manager. Uh, very, you know, done really well for both those bands and, um, just having the, uh, being stoic, you know, in, in a way, well, still having emotions, you know, and, yeah, uh, being able sure. to articulate thoughts and feelings and, uh, Brian Sandell is the manager for, or I'm sorry, the tour manager for revolution. He's, uh, beyond Tom really fish's tour manager. He's been my other huge mentor in life and just learning how to take things to another level as far as just like like not, not only having more things on your plate, you know, a bigger production, like, Mm -hmm. uh, he, I just side note, I got to say like, he was there my, uh, my first time tour managing a show, a headlining show at Red Rocks. He was there, uh, managing one of the other bands. So he got to see me tour managing my first show at Red Rocks. And that was like a big accomplishment for me. But, you know, just, I learned so much from him as far as like, like with real big fish, it was like minimal production. Um, you know, we wouldn't have crazy parties or anything, but then with other bands, it's a much bigger production. We'd have these hundred person guest lists. You have to cater to the band's family and friends Mm -hmm. that want to come. You have to make sure backstage is a good time. You have to make sure, you know, the, like you have a band bus and a crew bus and you have to make, you know, facilitate all these logistics, this just higher level of operating. And so, you know, learning that from, from him, uh, learning how to, uh, like letting go of like the grind of touring, letting go of the perfection of making sure the, sure the show is perfect and just, Oh, like learning how to oversee it, you know, uh, learning that like, yes, I want the show to be perfect. I've hired somebody to run the stage and make sure that, that the stage is well. And now I'm going to, um, you know, focus on uh, making sure the guest list is turned in, making sure that, uh, band members have the things they need and they Mm -hmm. want. And those are where I feel like I've really thrived as a, a tour manager is like, I know production. I know it like the back of my hand. I know how to put on a concert. I know how to build a stage and sell merch and make sure the lights look good. I know these things, but like catering to the artist, um, making sure they're happy, you know, cause yeah. the road can be a grueling place, even if you're on a bus, you For know? Sure. And so, uh, just communicating with the venues, making sure the venues happy, making sure the, the promoter feels good about booking the band there. Like, like I've really thrived on that side of things. Yeah. yeah. I've just like found that like the little things can go a long way too. of just like even s- whether it's small venue or a big venue, just like that next day email of like, Hey, like hitting the, the booker or the venue manager of just like, Hey, we had a great time last yeah. night. Like, thanks so much yeah, for absolutely. like making it an enjoyable experience. And like, yeah. just those little things seem yeah. to like, yeah, I, I don't do it like, I think there's value in uh, it's like the the boy who cried wolf. If you do it every time, it loses its importance, you know. Yeah. But I, I anytime I have a genuine good experience, I'm always the first one to send a, a, a you know I wake up, have some coffee, and I'll text my person from the day before and be like, "Hey man, I had such a great time yesterday. Yeah. The band was super happy. Thank you so much. Can't wait to see you next year." Um, and so like I hopefully that 
that holds some weight with other people as well. Hopefully yeah. that makes them go like, oh, he reached out and said, thank you so much. You know, and, and you have to be genuine about it. You know, and I, sure. I, I really do mean those things. And the other side of that coin is if I have a exceptionally bad experience, I'll let the booker know like, hey, that was exceptionally bad we should never go back to that place, right. you know, and I very, very rarely send those emails. So I hope that when I do, People it's, know. It, they know like, oof, oh, whoa, okay. We well, should make note. Yeah, not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like so, when you're talking about like, if you uh, saw your boy Tom yelling, you knew something was like really yeah, absolutely. fucked up that day. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was always, yeah, it's always like, uh, and I've tried to adopt the same thing where, you know, Again, in my earlier days, like when you're, man, they, we always say like being a stage tech, uh, it's like being in the hot seat. You know, you got a live show happening. You got 20,000 people in the audience. Something goes wrong. All eyes are on you. So it's, it's much more intense. And so there ends up being this sense of just like elevated, um, vibes for lack of a better word. And so yelling would happen, you know, and it, admittedly that was, um, somewhere I've, I, I had to improve on. And so now I've adopted the same mentality as a, as a manager. It's like, I don't yell. If you do hear me yelling, there's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have uh, a distinct memory of being with a band and the promoter refusing to pay us. And it turned into an argument and I came out of the office and one of the musicians was there like, like had heard the whole thing and was like, whoa, like, are, is everything okay? And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, the guy refused to pay us, blah, blah, blah. But even in hindsight on that one, I'm like, I, I mean, I could have had a back and forth, but ultimately I should have just left it up to like, cool. I'll let the, uh, booking agent chase you down and get the money. Cause that's what their job is. Right. You know? And in hindsight, I, if I found myself in that situation again, I probably would, you know, insist that he pay us. And if he refused, you know, just be like, cool, you'll get a phone call from the booking agent tomorrow, you know, and they won't book shows with you anymore. So, so yeah, so it's, you know, it's very rare that there's a time to ever be elevated. Yeah. So thinking about like that first time at red rocks, Mm -hmm. things like that. Are you pretty good about being able to like, acknowledge those big moments while they're happening and getting getting to like appreciate where you've yeah. you've kind of like gotten without like i don't know letting it feed the ego too much or not i don't know this is like sometimes i'm like in those spots and i'm like man like you're really here yeah. or like you know yeah it yes and no uh there's times where like my first time to Red Rocks, just period. Uh, I definitely, it was so magical. And it's like, oh, I made it to Red Rocks headlining show. This is amazing. You take time to soak it all in. My, you know, at this point, I think I've been there like seven or eight times. The magic's worn off a little bit. And being a tour manager there, it's a long day. Putting on a show at Red Rocks, I mean, for anybody, it's a long day. Um, putting on a show at Red Rocks just takes a lot. You know, a lot of local crew. Uh, it's it's union, so there's regulations on time breaks. Um, you have to cross load, which means you park your buses and your semis down below, and then you have to put everything on a, a flatbed truck and then ship it up to the venue. Oh, wow. That can take so much more time. 
this is a long day for everyone. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, whether it's Red Rocks or other places, like I always try and soak things in. Like I remember my first time going to Europe being like, wow, I made it to Europe. I made it, you know, uh, this is amazing. I'm going to experience everything. I'm going to soak it all in. I'm going to eat all these exotic foods <laughs> and make sure I go sightseeing as much as possible. So I've always been good at like taking time to... Um, acknowledge that I've made it somewhere that's like a goal of mine. But there's also times where like I'll talk to somebody, like maybe another industry person, and they'll uh, like ask me questions or they'll say things or they'll ask for advice. And then afterwards I'll be like, have I made it? <laughs> like, <laughs> wait, wait, am I the, like when I was coming up and I was looking up at people going, I wish I was there. Am I in that position now where there's kids, you know, that are starting out in the industry, grinding in vans, going like, oh, I wish I was, you know, working for a bus band or I wish I was flying around the world. You are it. me, Corey. Well, well that's the <laughs> thing. It's like, you know, it's so easy to get jaded in any industry, yeah. as, you know, and and uh, the music industry, especially just because it's what I know. And so th there's times where like something will happen and things get put into perspective. And it's like, one, I'm very fortunate to be here, you know, cause not only is it, was it my fantasy growing up, it's still a lot of people's fantasies. Like people, people that have, you know, traditional nine to five jobs where they're in an office every day, they fantasize, maybe they're a musician, you know, and maybe they come home and go into their man cave or something and they'll play guitar or the drums and they'll fantasize about being in a touring band. I'm living their dream. You know, so, so I have, I have to put that into perspective sometimes. And, but then it's, yeah, just like that realization of like, it, it genuinely took me a minute to be like, like, I think I've made it. I think I've achieved like what I wanted. I think I've hit those goals. And, and really for me, it was, um, uh, I bought my first house, uh, and just being like, wow, I did this from touring. I did. Yeah. I, uh, I would, I was always joke, uh, cause I was working for real big fish at the time. I'd be like, this is the house that Scott built, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. And anytime anybody, you know, and you, you know, Scott, it's one of those things where like everyone, like it's the butt of a lot of jokes. And so people would make fun of Scott or like, Oh, like especially going into the reggae scene, a lot of people would find out that I used to work for a Scott band and they'd be like, ah, oh, Scott, you're a nerd. <laughs> you know? And I'd be like, Scott bought me my first house. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> what does it mean? You know? Like, so I hope everybody is doing the fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Find these asses. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a minute to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by North 45 Pub, located in the Alphabet District of Northwest Portland. They've got a killer selection of Belgian beers and an extensive liquor wall of over 200 bottles. The fall and winter months are upon us and North 45 has a rotating cocktail menu to keep you warm throughout the rainy and cold season. The rosemary garlic fries are my go-to item on the food menu. The fry sauce is absolutely lights out and their kitchen staff is always getting creative with daily food specials. Aside from it being a great neighborhood bar for food and drinks, they've got one of the best patios in the city which is heated and covered. The patio has a ton of TVs, so you can watch all your favorite sports. And on Sundays from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m., they've got local DJs spinning jams, curating the music, both on the patio and inside the bar. So come through for some tunes and some food. Let's get back to the episode. Uh, what's the 
the shift been like for you to like move more into artist management and not just the the tour managing end of things yeah um that was honestly that was a little unexpected in in my career path um i i never like i always knew i wanted to be a tour manager i loved being on the road i i had sense enough to know that touring was a young single person's game and i oftentimes saw that people would drop out as they got older they would end up in long-term relationships they would have kids and so i knew even though i loved it still love it i always knew there could possibly be a time in my life where um things could be different and i might not want to be on the road and so i was in a situation where uh, i was working for revolution and we were we did a show in tahiti and we obviously built a vacation around that so you know we went to tahiti to do a show and then spent a handful of days just you know uh being in tahiti it's nice <laughs> and uh, dean the band's manager came for that one as you know any anybody would do and he was looking for a new assistant manager and he saw a lot of potential in me and he offered it to me and i was caught off guard it was like management uh, wasn't like the office side of it wasn't necessarily something I had uh, anticipated doing, but I knew it was a big opportunity. Yeah. I mean, biggest reggae band in the country, you know, if not bigger. And I also saw it as an opportunity to build um, an opportunity to like as a chance to get off the road if I ever wanted to. And so I said, yes. And I was uh, Reb's day-to-day manager um, for about a year, and which meant I was also Duran Jones' day-to-day manager, um, and then uh, also the sing- all the singer's side projects and stuff like that. So, uh, just so that was just like um, jumping into the deep end. Like, uh, I learned so much so fast, you know, put, doing these huge projects. Uh, man, I remember like one of the, the things I was working on, uh, Revolution released a vinyl box set of their entire discography. So just like, you know, something that we all take for granted. I know you're a record collector, so am I. You have records. You don't really think about what it takes to take that from a vision in somebody's head mm-hmm. to uh, a tangible object and like g- going through that process was a huge learning lesson, you know? Um, so really, um, at that time in my life, I was still, um, it, touring was still my passion. And I realized that uh, being an office person wasn't really where I wanted to be at that time in my life. And so I went back to touring and that's where uh, Duran needed a tour manager, went back and, you know, started working with them. And now um, full circle, you know, I have a kid now. And, uh, you know, going through a pandemic where I got to be home for a year for the first time in over a decade, you know, and um, having a kid and realizing, hey, I actually kind of like being home now. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so I've put more time and effort into uh, pursuing the management side of things again. Um, 
currently working with a uh, ska band called Suburban Legends. Which we've discussed a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Again, grow, yeah. you grow up in Southern California. You know who suburban legends? Yeah, are. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and so and they're just uh, longtime friends. I've known those guys since my real big fish days. Uh, so a good, geez, th- 13, 14 years now, something like that. And um, uh, you know, the hopes is to uh, build build a roster. You know where. I have, you know, maybe like four or five bands that I'm passionate about, really care about, and and think that they can actually do something yeah. in the world and work with them. I'm, I'm not trying to be a manager just just to be a manager. Like, I actually want to care about the people I work with. And that was something Dean always told me, uh, Reb's manager, was, uh, if, if I recall correctly, he would say something along the lines of, do you think this band's going to change the world? And the way I interpreted that was, are they worth your time, your energy? Do you really think that you can help them make up, you know, make something, you know, be something in the world, do something, impact people. And so, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work. A lot of time goes into it, a lot of time behind the scenes. And so uh, I'm always looking for, you know, a band that I and passionate about, you know, and so anyways, back to suburban legends, they, you know, long-term friends, they went dark, uh, during the pandemic, the way a lot of bands did. And, um, you know, they're trying to figure out how to fire back up, yeah. you know, they're not touring the way they used to. Everyone's, you know, a little bit older. People have kids now. And, you know, they were one of those bands that was out there, you know, like real big fish, 200 plus days out of the year grinding. And they don't want to do that anymore. And I don't blame them. And so it's trying to figure out how to um, still like still like operate the the business without the touring side of it, you know. So yeah, um, but yeah, that's kind of been my focus on the management side of things. And I'm, you know, I'm still out on the road occasionally, but um, you know, I'm not looking to take six week tours the way I used to. Yeah. You know, I have this adorable little baby that I actually like being home with. That's, that's awesome. I would imagine that's just like a part of now, like building some sustainability within the industry for yourself yeah. is like, all right, well, if I don't want to be on the road that much, you know, invest more into this, this artist management and yeah. figure that out. Yeah. And it's also something that I was so bad at for so many years and so many other touring people are is work-life balance. And so it's like trying to figure out how to have a successful, healthy, stable relationship. Yeah. Um, have, you know, uh, provide a stable family life for my child, still have a career, still do things I'm passionate about. Um, finding other avenues to uh, be creative. And uh, I, I just got to say, shout out to my wife. You know, having a supportive partner is like number one. You know, like if it wasn't for like she's always been the first one to to be 
like my my cheerleader my champion she's always just like uh, been supportive of me uh, taking new gigs exploring new opportunities she's she's there you know and she really understands like you know the idea of being in a relationship is to enhance enhance each other's lives yeah. you know we're not codependent on each other in any way and uh, of course we want to be together as much as possible she's not like hoping that you're one day going to be like I don't want to be a yeah. part of this industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's definitely, uh, you know, I've I've met people whose partners are like that, are just like waiting for the day they want to retire from touring. And she's like, she's always been like, this is a huge opportunity. You should absolutely take this. Yeah. We'll figure out how to make it work. You know, and and she has her own career going on as well, working in the medical industry. And I've always been very supportive of her dreams and ambitions of growing within that industry. And, you know, we were very happy here in Portland, but we've always said both of us is like if one of us ever had some crazy opportunity where we came home and it's like, you know, if she was like, oh, my God, I got this job offer from this hospital in in Iowa, you know, like, I'm not yeah. necessarily looking to move to Iowa, <laughs> but we would have a real conversation about it. You know, and like, what does this mean? What's it mean for the family? What, you know, how is it going to impact now our kid? You know, could we make this work? You know, uh, you know, and that, that goes both ways. And I think that's, you know, such a huge part of it is just being supportive, being open minded, being flexible. Yeah, for sure. As like technology keeps moving at like rapid speeds. Do you feel a lot of like pressure as an artist manager to like keep up with everything or are you like trying to maybe not feel so tied to that or is there like, is it a balance? That's a great question. Um, so, uh, yes and no. Um, so when the pandemic hit, I, I saw that the music industry, especially the touring side of it, was going to get shut down for a while. I, I just, I knew it was going to happen, um, and I took it as an opportunity to go back to school. And I uh, got a degree in um, digital uh, social media marketing um, and business management, and I uh, did that specifically um, because it. It applies to managing a band in a lot of ways. Like nowadays, managing a band is a lot of uh, having a social media presence and and uh, operating in that digital space. And so, uh, with that experience and that knowledge, I see the importance of operating on the on the internet and on social media platforms. And there is like. I don't want to call it a a stress, but there's definitely like, I feel the importance of staying up to date with what's happening. Um, like working with suburban legends, they're not a band that's, um, you know, they're not out there like doing TikTok trends, (laughs) you know, and things like that. So it's a little, little bit low pressure working with them, but I definitely see the importance of like, Oh, this new platform popped up. We should probably make a a handle on that platform just so we have it and we'll see how it does. And if it's, you know, starts (laughs) becoming more, more popular, we'll definitely, you know, create a presence on that platform. And, and I mean, currently, uh, 
uh, t- Twitter is up in the air of if <laughs> if it's going to keep on going, you know, and people are moving off of Twitter to these other platforms like Mastodon and, and things like that, which uh, <laughs> I just find hilarious because every time somebody talks about Mastodon, I just think of the like hardcore the metal band. band. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's all I think of anytime anybody ever says Mastodon. I'm like, yeah, Mastodon. Yep. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so it's just like there, as a band manager, there is like, we're way beyond the era of, you know, billboards print, you know, like there is some value if you can afford those things to mm-hmm. advertise in that way. But it, they're they're dinosaurs at this point, and uh, so it is important to like stay up with what's going on in the digital space, technology. Uh, you know, uh, I was having a conversation with one of the band members the other day about MIDI data, <laughs> you know, and like how you, you know, uh, releasing new songs uh, onto digital um, onto streaming platforms, like the the things that go into the MIDI data to to get recognized in mm. search engines and, and things like that. So it's like it's important to know those things. Yeah. It's like when you speak into Siri and ask her what song this is, yeah, (laughs) something has to register. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, how, how has that been for you? Have you, um, has it been a a learning lesson on your end or anything? Or were you pretty well versed in like Like social social media stuff? Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just like trying to figure out, how much time to invest in a TikTok presence now yeah. and not necessarily like following all the trends, but like, do I need to have a space there? I think the the biggest thing for me as far as like social media is like Instagram is where I've invested most of my time, but I still just like, we're all up against this fucking algorithms yep. that is like trying to, you know, keep everything out of vision. And it's like, how much time do I invest trying to like get around the algorithm or like, is it even worth putting up money for these sponsored posts anymore? Or like, yeah, yeah, especially, I don't know, doing what I'm doing specifically with the podcast of like sharing these conversations. It's like, it's hard to get visibility and it's hard to get the visibility from the artists even because like you know i get the big artists on and if they share it maybe once in their story it's maybe not gonna get that much vision or like you know visibility but you know every once in a while when the label actually throws the the post in their like instagram grid Mm -hmm. and it's just like oh i see a lot of return then but it's like also convincing them that that's and usually it's not convincing them it's just like something maybe they do on their own and like i know i can't reasonably expect every single label or artist to necessarily do that because they have all of their own aesthetic that they have to like abide by and they have to like I know that they can't necessarily like throw up this, this thing in their, their grid for some reason or another. So like the understanding is there, but it is like, can be a little frustrating, especially when maybe when you have a positive experience and the artist is like, Hey, that was like one of the better experiences I've had on a podcast or like during an interview. It's like, cool. Uh, please share it (laughs) (laughs) because it's not going to get seen on this end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like that's something like realizing that more becoming a manager where it's like, 
I hate I hate using this this word here, but like it's recognizing what the brand is. Yeah. And at the end of the day, a band is a brand, you know, for sure. And so there's definitely bands out there that like sharing like and it, it part of part of that comes into like what their audience wants to mm-hmm. see from them. So if you're the type of band where all of your social media is uh you know photos of you playing live, videos of you playing an acoustic guitar out in the woods or on the yeah. beach, you might not want to see an advert for, you know, this podcast, right. you know, that the singer was on. And so I to- like you know, when I was younger, I, I would have been more inclined to be like, why aren't they posting this on there? But now I'm like, I get it. Cause yeah. they're, they're curating like how their audience is perceiving them and, and they don't want to alienate fans and things Absolutely. like that. Um, but, but yeah, it's like definitely a struggle. And, uh, like as far as, um, <clears throat> like following trends and things like that, I, like I've, I recently had the realization that like each back back to each band having their own brand um like some people <laughs> inherently i feel are just good at so like social media dude isabel yeah amazing yeah, on I've, tiktok i like, follow TikTok, her on social instagram media. like she she crushes like yeah she does these videos on instagram i they probably come from tiktok i don't yeah. know if i've noticed where it's basically like her getting ready for the yeah, day or like getting ready check. to go out yep. yeah <laughs> and they're great and yeah. i feel like that's just something she is comfortable doing yeah uh and then there's bands where it's just like ugh, the idea or people mm-hmm. where it's like oh the idea of like talking to a a camera is like so uncomfortable or you know not natural for them to do so it's like trying to fi- like there's this thing of just like trying to figure out like what is natural for the the band or the artist what does their fan base right. want to see and there's really like a bit of a trial and error to figure it out there's no like real formula um for that works for every single person but yeah it's like just trying to trying to stay updated enough to know what's going on and like for me it's like suggesting like well hey we could try this we could try this we could do this right oh, you don't want to do that oh you don't want to do that oh well what about this oh okay and then like posting things and then just seeing how well it does with the fan base yeah. and being like eh, maybe we don't do that one again for sure. you know because people can tell when it's like genuine too like yeah. when when people feel like it's like a forced mm. thing that they like d- made this tiktok video or whatever yeah. you know opposed to like when someone actually like enjoys that process and enjoys creating that content, you can feel that for yeah. sure. So. I mean, I, I just got to say like, like a mantra I live by in life, business, everything is like, you have to be genuine. Yeah. You know, um, people pick up on uh, disingenuine uh, things, you know, uh, people in general, and you just, like if you want to be successful in business yeah. or life, um, you just, you have to like, people can sense if you're trying to sell them something. Yeah. You know? We're kind of like beyond that. I feel like too, like in this day and age of like the music industry, like nobody wants like the greasy guy in the suit 
yeah telling people yeah. what to do or like you know what your band needs man yeah. <laughs> it's like well yeah you know it's such an era of like independent artists you don't need a label you don't need to be signed you don't need like there's people that are there's artists that are so successful that don't even have a manager yeah <laughs> you know that I just blew up on TikTok. They you know? don't need and us, Corey. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying is like, uh, like people and people are smart. People don't get enough yeah. credit in general where it's like people can make informed decisions. People know what they like, you know. Um, people can, go, especially now with streaming platforms, people can go find music on streaming platforms uh, really easy. So it's, uh, you know, I think there's a huge importance to um, just, yeah. Just like having a quality product, yeah, uh, and uh, presenting it to an audience in a in a a good way, you know, and it's sure. and, and and that's that's where it comes into like being a manager is just like uh, figuring out how to do that, you know. Sure. And like I, I always talk with the Suburban Legends guys, where it's like, you know, they're I always tell them that we're you know, the they're almost 25 years deep into their career you know it's hard to believe that because we're all so young still <laughs> but um you know i always tell them that suburban legends 4.0 you know and because they're not out you know kids out in a van grinding anymore and so it's like trying to figure out how to make it work now and that's where i come in is like i'm a dedicated you know member of the band that's thinking about how how to stay relevant, how to bring product, you know, things to the audience, how to engage the audience. Where is the audience, you know, or is their audience on Instagram? Are they on Facebook? Yeah. Are they on none, none of those things? Do we need right. to do more live, you know, events to engage people? So it's like, that's, I think that's where like being a management comes in nowadays or being management comes in nowadays. And yeah, just helping navigate the the, <laughs> the modern world of, you know, band management. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely different. For sure, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I know I have to let you get back to, you know, your other role as being dad. Yeah. Um, but this has been awesome. I feel like I know that we could talk for hours about yeah, absolutely all of this stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, man, I appreciate you jumping yeah. on the mics with me and just uh overall i've i don't know i think we've been in the same room maybe like four times now but uh just since that first time that i met you at produce row and we yeah. we started chatting about stuff i just uh i appreciate your your warmth and your willingness to like share just your your general knowledge or just like like i definitely like appreciate getting to pick your brain but like i just feel like you're very willing to like just like help yeah. Like where you well, see that, that you can, mm. you know? Well, yeah. I mean, part of that is I, I, I'm a big believer that nobody, nobody can do anything by themselves. Like this idea of like, I, I did it all myself. I picked myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't think is real or exists. Even if you feel like that you've gotten a break from somewhere yeah set by somebody along the way of somebody giving you a chance beebs and her money makers letting me mix her band even though i'm still learning you yeah. know and people taking the chance of you know just being some guy who's helping his buddy's band and <laughs> giving me a chance to sell merch for real big fish and uh you know it, it like it it took a lot of a lot of time and a lot of help and a lot of advice from a lot of people for me to get 
cl- even close to where I am now, you know, and uh, I always try and there's a, the expression like my friend's success is my success yeah. as well. So I'm always trying to help people, um, you know, succeed. And yeah. part of that is also uh, I think there's a, an obligation that I feel to teaching how like, the music industry is so just like not regulated in the sense mm-hmm. of the way there's like no training program right, right. you know none of us are going to like yes you can go to school for music business but there's no school for this you know there's no textbook for yeah. this so it's like trying to help people learn how to do it and do it well and i went through the trial and error of figuring it out so let my you know failures be your you know stepping stone to success yeah man i just always think about like those conversations that people have been willing to have with me over the years and like how important those have been and just like trying to return that to other people when they have like questions about things or when you like have the opportunity to like drop some knowledge on someone whether it's like big or small of just like hey this is my experience with this thing and Mm -hmm. like maybe this is helpful or like yeah just even after getting to talk with you that that first time i was just like i feel like i could hit this guy with the text and just like ask him a question about something and he would be like very willing to share and you you have been i yeah oh i appreciate that and i like to think that i'm uh very accessible and um i i literally had a, a buddy hit me up two days ago and the text just said uh, hey, do you know any lighting companies in San Diego? And I was like, uh, I do. Yeah. Uh, give me a minute and I'll I'll send them over to you. You know, sure. and I, I try and be, uh, man, I think of so many times where I had to figure out things on my own, where I wish I had somebody I could have texted and said, hey, I'm trying to figure this out. Like, I need to rent a bus for this band. <laughs> what? Uh, who do I go to? Yeah. You know, and and I'm more than happy to share that information with other people and yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you? You know, like yes, there's like trade secrets, you know, and you know, job security, and and uh, there there's some elements of that that it's like you know maybe I'll hold some cards yeah. close to my chest, you know, they keep you know, but uh, you know, it's like again, you know, my friend's success is my success. I you want don't some have people do you that. don't have to give away the exact recipe exactly. You can, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> offering some some of the ingredients. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Awesome, yeah. man. Well, thanks so much again for jumping on the mics with me and sharing your experience experience and uh we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show which is it's a program it means absolutely nothing it's just the way that my grandfather says the the news program he always says program when he's talking about anything in regards to like television for some reason this enunciation uh happens and uh it's just a goofy way to end the show so if we can get the uh the Corey scott it's a program we could uh properly end this thing Okay, um, let's see here. It's a program. He nailed it, everybody. That's Corey. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for jumping on the mics. I'll put all the links in the episode notes so people can uh, keep up with you, or yeah. maybe I'll throw the Suburban Legends one in there. I'm Whatever definitely I can... sharing this on my social awesome. media. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all all uh, seven people that follow me <laughs> will get to see it. Awesome, man. And that is the Jelly Jams, and we will catch you on the flip side, Portland, or wherever you are listening from. Cool, man. Awesome. We did it. Cool. Hey, just want to give a big shout out to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to DistroKid for their longtime support of this thing. Make sure you go into the episode notes and find that DistroKid link to receive 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable prices even cheaper for you. 
So make sure you take advantage of that. You can also find the link in my link tree in my Instagram bio. Big thanks to DistroKid and the other sponsors of the show. Stay up. Stay tuned.